Well, I'll invite you, uh, as we prepare for the sermon here, I would invite you to open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 22. We'll continue in our In the Wilderness series. And uh, today we're going to focus on the, the, uh, the bulk of uh, Numbers 22, but, but really the latter portion. If you're not sure where Numbers is, if you haven't been with us for this series, if you have, then your Bible's probably starting to fall open to it by now. But if, uh, if you're new with us, you're not familiar with where it is, Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible, so if you start at the beginning, it's pretty easy to find. All right, so we'll start just by reading the text, uh, beginning with verse 13. <clears throat> Actually, let me back up to verse 10, just because if I start with 13, you're not going to necessarily follow what's going on here. Uh, verse 9, actually, God came to Balaam and asked, who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people that has come out of Egypt covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I will be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. The next morning, Balaam got up and said to Balak's officials, Go back to your own country, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite officials returned to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Then Balak sent other officials, more numerous and more distinguished than the first. They came to Balaam and said, This is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Do not let anything keep you from coming to me because I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people for me. But Balaam answered them, Even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Now spend the night here so that I can find out what else the Lord will tell me. That night, God came to Balaam and said, since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the Moabite officials. But God was very angry when he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path through the vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it lay down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat it with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make, me beat me, to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, You've made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? 
No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared it. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, if you are displeased, I will go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the Moabite town on the Arnon border at the edge of his territory. Balak said to Balaam, Did I not send you an urgent summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? Well, I've come to you now, Balaam replied. But I can't say whatever I please. I must speak only what God puts in my mouth. Then Balaam went with Balak to Kiriath-Huzoth. Balak sacrificed cattle and sheep and gave some to Balaam and the officials who were with him. The next morning, Balak took Balaam up to, to Bamoth Baal. And from there, he could see the outskirts of the Israelite camp. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, as we encounter your word today, as we sing these songs of praise and worship, I pray that you would drive your word deep into our hearts, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see you in your word, that you would give us uh, the, the rational reasoning faculties to be able to sort out what is said and make sense of it, but even more so, Lord, that you would illuminate our, our reading of the text by your Holy Spirit so that we would not merely understand the words, but we would understand what you are saying to us. Father, protect us from any voice that would exalt itself above the knowledge of you. We know that the, the evil one is seeking to deceive and distract and discourage us even now. That he works to snatch the seeds that the sower scatters. Protect us. Lord, make our hearts fertile soil for the seed of your word, that we might take deep root, and that we might be fruitful and multiply as we grow in Christ. We pray these things for his glory, in his name, amen. Well, as we are um, working through numbers for us to be able to to see how this all fits together, we need to keep in mind the big picture. And as we've been going through this, this somewhat strange book that is sometimes uh, kind of cast aside by especially evangelical folks who, who think we need to spend all our time in the New Testament or in things that are easy for us to, to wrestle with. What do we need this Old Testament historical stuff for? What do we need to understand the law for? That, that, that's all old stuff. We don't need it. 
Hopefully, if you've been with us, you've seen that the book of Numbers isn't really about numbers. It's actually a dynamic story talking about God's interaction with his people. And as God's people make unfaithful choices, this is the theme of the book, our unfaithful choices have consequences. And yet God remains faithful to his promises. When God has a covenant people and he promises to bless and keep them, that's exactly what he does. And so uh, for us to be able to, to rightly understand this, we, get, we need to go back and understand at least one foundational promise uh, to be able to do that. So um, you can keep numbers marked, but go back to the first book of the Bible, to Genesis, and find chapter 12. We've referred to this throughout the series, but I don't know if I've had you turn there or not. We won't do nearly as much uh, flipping pages today as what we ordinarily would, but I want to have you see this to start with. The first five verses or so should suffice from Genesis chapter 12. We've seen God create everything that exists. We've seen humankind sin and, and separate ourselves from God, cutting off uh, our, our relationship with him and so the natural consequence of being cut off from the source of life the giver of life is death and that was what god had promised if we disobeyed we would die adam and eve did so and in god's mercy he didn't cause them immediately to die physically they began the process of death death entered the system but they were immediately spiritually dead they were separated from God. We are born in that state. We inherit that from our forefather Adam. As the federal head of all of us, his sin represented us, and therefore we start out not as clean slates like many psychologists would say, but we start out as sinners, bent toward our own self-centeredness bent toward making ourselves God in rebellion against the one true living God. So after that happens for Adam and Eve, things just get worse and worse. The entire uh, world becomes corrupt. So everybody everywhere is just doing evil all the time. If you thought it was bad now, it's even worse then. And so God judges the earth with a global flood. And in this flood, he, in mercy, calls out a remnant. He takes Noah, who's been faithful to him, and Noah's family, still sinners, but faithful to God, and he puts them in this ark, this big box of a boat, and saves them through the judgment. Sends them out to repopulate the earth, but unfortunately the sin that is in them, then comes with them. So in repopulating the earth, sin is still there. We go through all of these stories that, that, that progress through the generations, and now, in chapter 12 of Genesis, eons of history ha have gone by now. I don't know if eons is the right word, but there, there's been a lot of time, a lot of generations. And now, God calls a man named Abram, from a pagan family in a pagan land to come and be his. 
Abram's not looking for God. Abram's not earning a relationship with God. God reaches in and says, you're mine. I need you to leave your land of comfort and go where I'm going to show you. And Abram does. And here's what we see in the first five verses of chapter 12. You'll know Abram better as Abraham. God later changes his name. Verse 1, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. And they arrived there. You may recognize Sarai as the one we now call Sarah. God changed her name as well. You may remember Lot as the one whose wife was turned into a pillar of salt when she looked back uh, with presumed longing for the, the, the city that they left in Sodom and Gomorrah. And now you may recognize also that he's calling them to Canaan. Canaan is the land that we see in Numbers as the promised inheritance. God brought Abram to Canaan, removed Abram from Canaan, promised to bring him back to Canaan, and that's where we find ourselves now. But don't miss out on what we see in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, with that in, in the background, just a quick review of, of what we've seen the last couple of weeks. In chapter 21, we saw this core reality that when God's people walk in God's promises, God's blessings abound. So uh, we saw there that the Lord delights to bless His children. And when we understand that delight when we trust him enough to walk in him, in obedience to him god's blessings naturally flow we don't have to chase them we don't have to think about them we don't have to stress and fret and worry god takes care of his own because he delights to bless his children and because the lord delights to bless his children there were four things that we learned in chapter 21 one he doesn't need our prompting to provide for our needs he doesn't need our planning to remove our obstacles. He doesn't need our strength to fight our battles. And lastly, we saw that He doesn't need our assistance to keep His promises. Now, that was the springboard to come into the section we're in now in chapters 22 to 24. And in chapters 22 to 24, we see God acting, working on behalf of His people and his people aren't even really mentioned. At the beginning of 22, they come and they, they set up their camp in the plains of Moab. They're across the Jordan from Jericho. They're going to sit here, basically, until we get to the book of Joshua. So the rest of the book of Numbers, all through Deuteronomy, we get to the book of Joshua. Then they're going to cross the Jordan and go, and you've heard the story of Jericho and so on. 
But for the next several chapters, God's doing stuff to bless his people. And they don't even know what's going on. They have no idea that it's happening. They don't know that they're under attack. They don't know that God is acting. And so we saw, as we looked at this last week, that God's people can trust that he is working on our behalf even when we can't see it. God's people are regularly under attack even when we're not aware of it. And God's activity is often hidden. He's still working. He's still doing things. He's active on behalf of his people. But that doesn't mean he's telling you what he's doing. We see that God's enemies are relentlessly determined. We'll, we'll read through that again uh, today as we're looking at uh, verses 13 to 17. That even when God uh, has Balaam tell, tell Balak's people no, he sends another contingent with more people and more important people and more wealth and makes bigger promises. God's enemies are relentlessly determined we see also God's ways are often mysterious. God's means are never limited. And God's sovereignty is ultimately undeniable. We're going to focus our, our attention really on these last three ideas as we work through the, uh, the text that we read today. And as we do that, we'll see this core reality. The Lord goes to extraordinary lengths to bless and keep His people. It's simple, but I want to make sure you have it in your head. This is the, the underlying melody to this entire symphony that God is putting together here. The Lord goes to extraordinary lengths to bless and keep his people. Now we saw in Genesis that he makes this promise to Abram that he will make him into a great nation. And that's who the children of Israel are. They are the descendants of Abram, later Abraham. And they are God's people, God's special, unique people called out from the nations so that the, the world around them is opposed to God. Human-centered, worshiping any number of gods that get them what they want as far as they understand. So they, they, they pray to idols and they uh, pray to the sun and they do all these things. And we can recognize some of that throughout the, the history of human culture we could probably recognize how much we emphasize and worship things today. We might worship our job, thinking that's how we get provision. We might worship our religious ceremonies, thinking that's how we connect spiritually with eternity. We get a hold of God through our religious ceremonies, and it becomes an idol. Later on today, we'll be um, having what we call our remembrance celebration. We set that time aside the first Sunday of each month, to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross because he told us to do that. But that ceremony in itself does not, will not, cannot earn you points with God. We don't get to God through sacred ceremonies. Rather, we, we relate to him. He graciously gives us these tangible things to help us connect the dots to get the, the principles to drop 18 inches from up in the head to down in the heart. And if we start to let that become a thing, where we're climbing a ladder to heaven through religious effort, 
It's just as much of an idol as the folks in Abram's time. So now, having kept his promise to make Abram a great nation, the Israelites are too numerous to count, although it's kind of funny I say that because they actually count themselves in the book of Numbers. But anyway, Balak's going to look at them and say, who can count these people? Balaam's going to prophesy and say, who can count these people? And God promised Abram, hey, if you can count the stars, if you can count the grains of sand, then you'll be able to count your descendants, the nation I'll make of you. He's kept that promise. And now he's moving them. He's brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He's about to take them to the promised land. Their fathers in the previous generation rebelled against God. God judged them, had them wander through the wilderness for 40 years until that generation passed. New generations here. He's taught them some lessons. They're about to go in. And then God inspires the author to include this section that the author doesn't actually know about except for God bringing this to his attention. Because Moses isn't involved. And the people of Israel aren't involved. They're affected, but they're not involved. And Balak, the king of Moab, has just seen God's people wipe out the Amorites. Well, wait a minute, this is pretty powerful neighbors we got here. They, they, they took over half of our kingdom. That's how they got here. And so, wow, there's so many of these Israelites. And they seem to have such a, a power that, that they've wiped out our neighbors. What in the world are we going to do? I know. I'm going to get this prophet for hire that everybody's talking about. This seer, this Balaam guy, who goes around, you know, blessing people, cursing people, and, and it seems to be effective, so I'm going to hire him to come and put a curse on these people, then maybe they'll be weak enough for me to take them down. God says no. So here are some principles as we walk through this that we should observe that, that can have a, a lasting impact as we see what's going on in this very strange story. And if you don't think it's strange for a donkey to talk, you may have watched too many animated features. That's not normal. And yet it happens. And hopefully along the way you'll see uh, that <laughs> there's some humorous things that go on. I, I heard uh, a commentator say that it thinks that this whole section is sort of God pranking these people. It's, uh, I think that maybe is going too far, but there is, we should pick up on the humor. God uses irony in this. There's a strong sense of irony. There's some sarcasm. We need to be able to pick up on that. All right, so first notice this. God allows bad choices, but consequences remain. God allows bad choices, but consequences remain. In verses 13 to 22, we see that the Lord tells Balaam to go, but he's angry with him for going. It's When we saw last week that, that uh, God works in mysterious ways, that's one of them. And we look at it and we're like, well, wait a minute, why would he tell him to go if, if he doesn't want him to go? Well, God's ways are indeed often mysterious, and he need neither explain it to us nor ask our permission. Nonetheless, we need to recognize that sometimes we make things harder to understand than they actually are. 
particularly when it comes to reading the Bible. Very often we'll read the Bible and something that's pretty plain if it were in any other setting, if it weren't in the Bible or if it weren't in church that we're talking about it, it'd be pretty simple for us to understand because we have similar conversations and, and, and events in our lives all the time that we don't have a difficult time interpreting, but then put it in the Bible and all of a sudden it's like, you know, we can only use part of our brain now. We have to put on our church brain. Oh, it's going to only mean this. Let's not make things harder to understand than they really are. The Lord is not here commanding Balaam to go because he's already commanded him not to. God was very clear. Don't go. Don't curse these people. They're blessed. And he said all the way back in Genesis, I'm going to bless those who bless Israel. I'm going to curse those who curse Israel. He's made it clear in, in already this journey, in the beginning, the foretaste of the conquest of the nations. We're going to see this really play out in the book of Joshua. But, when, but here already, just in the last chapter, we're seeing this foretaste of the victories that God's going to give to his people. And whether or not they are the larger force, whether or not they have the military advantage, when they are walking with God and God is delivering them the victory, it is always a resounding victory. God doesn't squeak them through and, boy, I'm glad we, glad we got out of that. It's overwhelming. And the people around them are astonished because of that. Now, as we see this play out here, we can look at, at, at God telling them, okay, go ahead. And then God's angry with them. And we can think, well, God seems to be contradicting himself. But, but he's not commanding him to go. He's conceding to Balaam's godless desires. Think of it this way. It's like God's saying to Balaam, you want to have it your way? All right, go ahead. That's not hard for us to process. It's not hard for us to understand. We see such things all the time. God often permits things that he does not accept. In other words, he allows us to have our own way, to do our own thing, to make our own choices and go into our bad decisions. But we remain responsible for the consequences. Every choice, every action has a consequence, whether good or bad. And I cannot escape the reality that my choices determine my destiny, right? If I commit a crime, I am subject to the law. I may think I get away with it. I may even get away with it for a time. But in the, me in, in the meantime, while I have gotten away with it, I am still subject to the consequences of running and hiding and trying to escape earthly consequences. And nobody ever escapes the divine consequences that God has in store. Because he sees and he knows, and in case you missed it, he's God. And everybody will stand before him. The Lord was not unclear in his command. But Balaam was hoping for an out. Notice, and I had to chuckle as I read it. God says, don't go. So he sends them home. They come back with a better offer. And he's like, oh, okay. I, I, I wasn't going to take the deal, but you're offering a pretty big contract here. It's an interesting thing to me. Uh, look at verses 13 and following. All right. Um, 
13, the next morning, Balaam uh, got up, said to Balak's officials, go back to your own country, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite officials returned to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Balak sent other officials, more numerous, more distinguished than the first. They came to Balaam and said, this is what he says. Come, do this, I'm going to give you a lot of money, right? 18. But Balaam answered them, even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, one commentator I read pointed out, nobody mentions silver and gold in his palace. This is obviously already what Balaam has in his heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. These are his desires. He likes the idea of getting all the gold and silver in his palace. This is why he brings it up. Even if, even if he gave me everything, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Understand the Lord is not his God. This is a pagan prophet for hire who goes around using the name of whatever God is convenient. That's what he does. Notice verse 19. I, I, I couldn't do that. I can't do anything beyond what God said. What did God say? Don't go with them. Don't curse them. 19. Now spend the night here so that I can find out what else the Lord will tell me. What more will he say? Maybe there's an out. Maybe if I inquire of the Lord again, I can find a way to have my cake and eat it too. I can play the religious game here. So God is not telling him to go, but Balaam is looking for an out. He's looking for an exception or a workaround. The Lord let him have his way, but he held him responsible for the reckless, perverse path he had chosen. The Lord will often let us go ahead and pursue the reckless, perverse path that our flesh desires. But that doesn't mean for a moment that we don't face the consequences of choosing the path that God opposes. And that's exactly what happens here. Go ahead, Balaam. If you're, you're bound and determined to go and do this thing. You're going to try and find a way. Okay. I said it once, I'm not saying it again. Go ahead. Now God is angry with him, and he opposes him. And he sends the angel of the Lord, bearing a sword, never a good sign, to stand in his path. Because the path is reckless and perverse. Notice, secondly, in verses 23 to 33, we see a number of things take place. Notice this. Sometimes those who think they see are most blind. Sometimes those who think they see are most blind. Starting in verse 23. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field. Now, just that sentence, before we even get to the rest of it, ought to grab our attention. Because how often are we talking about the things a donkey sees, the things my cat or dog sees? That, you know, my, my fish really has a pretty good, profound understanding of spiritual reality. Come on, man. That's crazy stuff. But sometimes, sometimes those children, even animals, have a perception of what's going on that we who think we're so smart don't get. 
When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. <coughs> Pardon me. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path through the vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it, so he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it just plopped down. It lay down under Balaam. And he was angry and beat it with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth. And it said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make, me beat you, to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, You've made a fool of me. Maybe before the servants, you know, maybe Balaam's guys were still, uh, Balak's guys were still close enough to see. In any case, he says, you've made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. Boy, pride can make us crazy, can't it? The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your own donkey? Which you've always ridden to this day? In other words, have I not always been loyal to you? Is this, is this my habit? Haven't I been good to you? Why would you assume the worst and treat me this way? No, he said, 31. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I've come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now but I would have spared the donkey. So in this section, we see that the Lord opposes Balaam with his angel, but he allows Balaam's donkey to see and avoid the angel while Balaam is completely blind to it. Kind of ironic, isn't it? That the so-called seer, this one who's spiritually in tune, who sees things, who has visions, who receives these divine words can't see what's right in front of him. And yet God gives the beast of burden an awareness of God's messenger of wrath. Don't let the irony be missed. And that plays out throughout the rest of the section as we see God do through the donkey what the prophet ought to do, what the prophet is by his job description supposed to do, to see and speak on God's behalf. And now the donkey does that. God's means are never limited. We need to recognize that Jesus referred to the religious leaders of his day as blind guides. We see them very clearly uh, pointed. He, he uses that term expressly in Matthew 15 and 23. There, there are other places, but in those two chapters we see him bring that out. The Old Testament prophets, specifically Isaiah and Jeremiah, use similar language and similar concepts uh, to talk about the faithless leaders of God's people in their day. They're blind guides. They don't see what they ought to see. And yet they're trying to lead others. Of all people, these leaders of God's people should have seen and recognized the coming of the Messiah. They had the word. 
They should have recognized and seen the signs and the fulfilled prophecies. And then because they saw them and they recognized what they are, they should have recognized Jesus for who he was and is. But in their arrogance, they became more blind than those who suffered from physical blindness or couldn't see the truth because they didn't have the scriptures. They didn't have the means to see. They didn't have spiritual eyes. And so they were blind, and yet Jesus gave them sight. These leaders had all of those things. They had the means to see. They thought they saw, but they saw nothing. Blinded eyes can't see the light when it's glowing in the night right in front of you. After Jesus healed a blind man in John chapter 9, these faithless leaders, the, the Pharisees and the chief priests, rather than praising God for the sign, or even praising God for mercy shown to a blind man, instead, these faithless leaders tried to get the man to speak against Jesus. In response to their attitude, Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Sometimes those who think they see are most blind. You know, people are the same today as they were in those days or in Balaam's day. Too often, pride and arrogance makes us blind to the reality that we're on a reckless, perverse path, on a collision course with God's anger. We think we see, but we're so blinded that even a donkey could get it before we do. Now, if that's true, that so, those who think they see sometimes are the most blind. Notice in that same section, this point. Sometimes those who think they know are most resistant. Sometimes those who think they know are most resistant. Not only was Balaam too blind to see what was in front of him, he was too cocky to be able to submit himself to what this donkey was doing. After three times, the donkey's given speech to confront Balaam, but Balaam still is resisting. God finally opens Balaam's eyes to see the angel, but through this whole thing, he's pushing back. The angel's there to kill him, the donkey is trying to save him, and he's resisting. Throughout the Old Testament, we see Moses, the prophets, God speaking through them, use the term stiff-necked and stubborn about God's own people. They rebel against God. They refuse and resist. God's giving them mercy. He's giving them blessings, but they're resisting. Oh, we hate this manna. Can't we just go back to Egypt? You're on the verge of everything you've ever dreamt of. I'm doing it for you. You don't even have to work for it. 
All you have to do is obey and show up, and I'm going to pour out blessings you can't even imagine. Oh, but, you know, Egypt seems better. Let's go back to our old life. Stiff-necked, stubborn. In Acts 7, you don't have to turn there, but you might jot it down. I don't think it's in your program. In Acts 7, verses 51 to 53, Stephen, who's an early deacon and the first martyr of the church, is given an, an amazing sermon. And he's about to be stoned to death. And as they're about to stone him to death, Stephen says to these people who claim to be the people of God, yet resist the will of God in Christ, he says, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. That was the big claim, right? We're circumcised. It's the sign of the covenant. We belong to God. Therefore, because we have the circumcision, we are God's people. He says, oh, that's fine. You got one part circumcised, but the parts that matter, not circumcised. You are not set apart for God. He said he goes on, you're just like your ancestors. We just said in the Old Testament, they were regularly called stiff-necked. You're just like your, old, your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it having the law, having the ability to know isn't the point. Obedience. Obedience is the demonstration of faith. It's not how we earn a relationship with God, but it is a demonstration that we are in a relationship with God. They've received the law, but because they're stiff-necked, they resist the Holy Spirit, and they have not obeyed it. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 12 and the writer here is quoting from Psalm 95, says this. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the wilderness, referring to this book we're in, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did, that is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from, that resists the living God. Sometimes those who think they know are most resistant. Balaam resisted God's will. Rebuke and, rebu rebuking let me take a sip of water here. See if that helps. Balaam resisted God's will, rebuking, hey, it did work, and beating the poor donkey that saved him from death. He kept looking for an out that would allow him to have his way as if he could game or manipulate God. Maybe you've been doing the same thing. Maybe you thought you had all the answers. But maybe the Lord is convicting you right now, even as I'm speaking. If so, just like we just read in, in Hebrews, 
Now is the time to stop resisting. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Turn to Jesus Christ in faith and acknowledge him as your living hope. Surrender to him. Give up control. Die to yourself and be reborn by faith in Christ. If you want to know more about how to do that, see me afterwards. Because if God is talking to you, you don't want to be the one that resists. You don't know when he's going to stop offering that grace. So if you hear him, you feel that nudge that says, i got to turn this stuff over to God. I can't do this myself anymore. I need to give him the steering wheel here. Don't wait. You need to die to yourself to be reborn. Next, notice this. Verses 34 and 35, when the angel confronts him. The fear of God is necessary when the love of God is absent. The fear of God is necessary when the love of God is absent. Verses 34 and 35. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. Notice right uh, as we're seeing this before this, when he saw the angel, he bowed low and fell face down. 34, Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I didn't realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now if you're displeased, I'll go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. Fear moves him. The angel confronts Balaam about his treatment of the donkey, which is representational of his resistance. Not to mention it's just not cool to beat on your donkey. Um, And and I I say that only slightly with tongue-in-cheek. God does care about how we treat animals. He created them. We need to treat them as those created by God. They don't bear God's image like like humans. And I'm going to just say this little free side note. It is sinful for us to consider them equal to humans. It is sinful for us to treat animals as if they are God's image bearers. They are not. But it is equally sinful for us to treat them disrespectfully for us to abuse them. We must recognize that God gives and creates life and how we handle all life, all people, all creation reflects our view of God. All right, coming back to to what we're talking about here. Balaam resisted God's will. And the angel confronts Balaam about that resistance as symbolized in his treatment of the donkey. And he points out that the donkey has actually saved Balaam's life. Balaam, now stricken with fear, expresses repentance. He's turning from his way. He's changed his mind, finally. Now, throughout this process, he's been trying to find a way to to take an end run and get to the money. Show me the money. Now, he doesn't care about the money because there's a sword over his head. He's on his knees. He's face down. He's stricken with fear, and he says, I I didn't know. I'm sorry. If you want me to go back, I'll go back. Now things have changed. Now God's gotten his attention. And so now it goes from the concession, go ahead if you want, to yes, go. And when you go, 
I'm going to put words in your mouth. You're going to do my will. The fear of God is necessary when the love of God is absent. Once God opens the eyes of Balaam's heart to see what's standing right before him, Balaam is terrified. That fear is the only thing, don't miss this now, that fear is the only thing that turned Balaam from his plans in that moment. Because his plans were about Balaam. How can I get me my stuff? Now his plans are completely out the window, and his only focus, still on Balaam, is, uh uh-oh, there's an angel with a sword. This ain't working out how I thought. God uses that fear to get a hold of his attention. Now, the rest of Scripture, and, and we won't go through them, but you see it in the New Testament, the Second Peter, in the book of Jude. We see it in, in the book of Micah. Those references, I think, are all in your program for you. <coughs> Excuse me. The rest of Scripture reveals Balaam's heart. We see his character in these other references. His driving force was his greed, not his faith. It wasn't that he is suddenly repentant to the point where he's going to love and serve God. Up until this moment, he doesn't even appear to fear God. He sees God as a means to an end, like all the other false gods. But seeing the angel with the sword and recognizing this impending doom shatters his resistance with the hammer of fear. As Dennis or as Brad, I mean, read for us earlier in Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. We should, we should eternally praise the Lord. When we follow his precepts, his laws, when we know his word, and we take it into our heart, and we're not just hearers of the word, but we're doers of the word, and we have good understanding. But that starts with knowing who he is, with the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning, not the end, of wisdom. When we recognize who he is, when we really see him, fear is the only reasonable response. Imagine you're walking through the woods and all of a sudden, we don't have him around here, but a gray wolf, since I'm saying something we don't have around here, let's say a roaring lion, shows up in the woods. And your first natural thought is not probably, oh, pretty kitty, come here, let me pet you. Your natural reaction is, i got to get out of here. There's a lion in the woods. Fear is the right, reasonable response. Because it's a lion. And it can kill you. The same is true when we're talking about the living God, only infinitely more. The God who created the cosmos by the word of his will. He just wanted it to be and therefore it was. The only omnipotent, omniscient being in the universe. No matter what the comic book publishers tell you. Says that you will stand before him and he will judge you. Everyone. No one gets a pass, a pass. No wayward thought is is going to remain covered up. Every careless word will be accountable for. 
we should fear. But when we truly know him, when we get to the place where we've entered into a covenant relationship with him, and we go from being outsiders and enemies to being his dearly loved children by faith in Christ, we learn that the roaring lion we rightly feared is actually on our side. He's actually defending us, not attacking us. Love is the end, the goal, but fear is the beginning, the means to that end. When we're not motivated by our love of God, then the fear of God must suffice to bring about obedience. That's what we see in Balaam. He doesn't serve God out of love, but in this moment, on this occasion, his fear is going to cause him to obey. It's true in our lives. Those whose faith in God's character and promise moves them from merely fearing the Lord to loving the Lord are those whose eyes He has opened, whose minds He has enlightened, whose resistance He has shattered. These are they who are saved from darkness and hell and have become children of God forever. And it is for these that the Lord goes to great lengths to bless and keep His people. Notice this last point. The Lord uses even His enemies to bless His people. The Lord uses even His enemies to bless His people. Verse 36, When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the Moabite town on the Arnon border at the edge of his territory. Balak said to Balaam, Did I not send you an urgent summons? Dude, what's, what's the problem? Why, why have you not been here already? Did I not send you an urgent summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? You think I'm a poor king? You think I can't give you the stuff I offered? <laughs> I love Balaam's response. Well, I've come now. Here I am. Let, let's get to work. But I can't say whatever I please. As much as I want to, I want to get all the silver and gold in your palace. I can't say whatever I please. I must speak only what God puts in my mouth. Then, Balak, then Balaam went with Balak to Kiriath Huzoth. Balak sacrificed cattle and sheep and gave some to Balaam and the officials who were with him. The next morning, Balak took Balaam up to Bamoth Baal. And from there, he could see the outskirts of the Israelite camp. We'll see more about that. Uh, development of what we see there in the last couple of verses as we get into this next week. But what we need to recognize here is that Balaam goes to Balak, but he realizes now in a way that he could not realize before. He can't curse God's people. No matter how much he may want to do otherwise, Balaam delivers the oracle God puts in his mouth, much to the despair dismay and displeasure of Balak as we'll see next week and the following. Genesis 39 through Genesis 50, that, that last part of the book of Genesis tells the story of Joseph. You know, the guy with the Technicolor dream coat. You know. 
I don't know where that came from, but it's, you know. Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt by his jealous brothers. But God blessed him and kept him through years of mistreatment until at last God moves Pharaoh to promote Joseph to prime minister. Second only to Pharaoh himself. Nobody else in the kingdom compares to Joseph. Years later, after Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers, they've now come to Egypt. There was a, uh, a famine, and so they come to Egypt where Joseph has stored up food and made Egypt prosper even while everyone else is struggling. They come. He reveals himself to them. And after their father dies, the brothers fear that Joseph is going to seek revenge because, you know, they sold him into slavery kind of a thing. And that was the better option, by the way, if you go back to the story. They were going to kill him and figured, oh, no, no, we'll, we'll sell him into slavery instead. This is a better thing. Great family. Anyhow, you thought your brothers and sisters were bad. See, I'm telling you, some ringtones are just better than others. Anyway, they're afraid Joseph is going to seek revenge, but we see Joseph's faith-filled response to them in Genesis 50, verses 19 and 20. But Joseph, Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph, after years of faithfulness through mistreatment, had seen God bless and keep him beyond his wildest dreams. He understood better than most that the Lord goes to great lengths to bless, to bless and keep his people, even using those who oppose his will to carry out his will. Even using those who oppose his people to bless his people. And he does the same thing for us. Every part of your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, has been orchestrated by God for your ultimate good and His ultimate glory. It's all been working to bring you to the foot of the cross. Once you find yourself there, broken and on your knees, ready to surrender everything to Christ, then He uses all of the same junk that He used to bring you there to shape you, to refine you, to make you more like Jesus. God will use even those who hate Him and hate you to bless those who belong to Him. God uses even His enemies to bless His people. The Lord goes to extraordinary lengths to bless and keep His people. This includes going to extraordinary lengths to redeem and to call and to save and to sanctify. This is where we see Jesus, we see Christ in this passage in Numbers with this weird story about a talking donkey and a pagan prophet who encounters an angel stricken by fears, character doesn't change, he doesn't convert and become one of God's people and yet God uses him and we'll see this in the next couple of weeks here 
to prophesy about the Messiah who is present in God's promises straight through. Just as God goes to great lengths to bless and keep his people Israel, he does the same thing in blessing and keeping his church, those who belong to him. Not some organization, but those whose hearts have received Christ by faith, who have surrendered and died to themselves. God keeps his covenant promises. The promises he made to Abraham and Israel are fulfilled in Jesus. And again, we'll see more of that in the next few chapters. Christ's work on our behalf is extreme. Much more extreme than an angel in the path and a talking donkey. No, Jesus, God himself, took on flesh and became one of us to live the life we couldn't live and to die the death we deserved to die so that he could give us the life, the righteousness that we could never have on our own. Taking on the sins of all humanity, becoming sin for us, even while we were still sinners and enemies of God, so that we could become his own righteousness. That we could become his perfectly forgiven, wholly accepted, and dearly loved children. What we see in this passage with Balaam is God working what we might call monergistically. It's one doer. He is the only impetus here. Balaam's not doing it. The donkey's not doing it. Even the angel's not doing it. Israel's got nothing to do with it. They're not even in the scene. God is doing everything that needs to be done to bless and to keep his people. In the same way, God does everything for our salvation. And the only thing I contribute is the sin that made it necessary in the first place. Not my effort. Not even my faith. He gives grace. It's the grace that saves. My faith is simply unwrapping the gift, taking hold of what he is doing. Jesus is the blessing. He is the keeping. He is God's presence with us. Just as we see that presence as the focal point of the book of Numbers, so it is in Christ. Now the New Testament warnings that connect false teachers and false gospels with Balaam's way are strong. I wish we had time to develop that. We don't. Maybe we'll talk about it in the podcast. Maybe we'll come up another time. We'll see it because God's word is faithful even if I'm off on time. But while the warnings against these false teachers are strong, God's word, God's will, God's promise is not hindered. Paul says in Philippians 1.18, talking about these people who are out preaching with false motives. They're trying to get stuff from, for themselves. A whole lot like Balaam, actually. And they're preaching the gospel, and apparently from what Paul's saying, accurately, but with bad motives. He says, whether from false motives or true, what difference does that make to me? All I want is for the gospel to be preached, for people to know him, to find the truth and find life. And yet, as Paul defends his ministry in 2 Corinthians and and in Galatians and elsewhere, we see that we should never, we must never be among those who have 
falsity in our hearts, who pursue Balaam's way, who want to use religion to get ahead, to try to make a profit. Many of you have been burned by that other places. Many of you have bought into that, that if I just have enough faith, you know, I read this book, I hear this preacher, if I just have enough faith, God's going to take care of my sickness and it'll go away. And, and, and God will give me wealth and I'll be able to make all my dreams come true. These are lies. God wants to bless his people, but he does it on his terms, not ours. That said, I'll close with this thought, the Lord goes to extraordinary lengths to bless and keep his people. Therefore, we can trust him in every aspect of our lives, every moment that we walk this planet. But we have to turn our lives over to him. When we're his, he'll take care of the rest.